Welcome to Shortcut to Slim, a research-based podcast on dieting and nutrition brought to you by GetMealPlans.com and Happy Herbivore. I'm your host, Lindsay S. Nixon. Before I formally end season two, I wanted to touch base on media hoopla that happened around my hero, Brian Wansink, back in February. If you don't know who he is, he authored one of my favorite books, Mindless Eating, as well as Slim by Design and a few others. Last time I checked, he'd been quoted or was somehow involved with over 250,000 publications, books, periodicals, you name it. To say I'm a fangirl is an understatement. If you've listened to this podcast at all, you know I fangirl out every season and pretty much in every single episode. So he's a personal and professional hero of mine. He's a muse, an inspiration, all of the things. Why I love his work so much, it changed my life. It's one of the reasons I have this podcast. It's why I finally lost weight in a lot of ways. It's magic. (laughs) I don't know. His behavior modification, the way he approached it through behavior modification, and the suggestions he gives and the tips and the examples and the studies, they've been transformative for me, as I said, professionally and personally. So here's what happened. Earlier this year, Wansing's research was attacked, I'm using kind of air quotes here, through a string of media articles, some from journalists, some from bloggers, some from cooking bloggers. And that led to him having to face a scientific misconduct, a whole investigation. There were allegations. Cornell got involved. I'm going to detail into all of this. But as this whole bombshell happened, it was rather strange on my personal timeline. So in late 2017, which was last year, Goodreads tweeted asking Twitter followers of Goodreads who their favorite nonfiction writer was. And of course, I replied back in my tweet, Brian Wansink. And someone who I didn't know replied to my tweet saying, actually, he's a fiction writer. I thought this was odd and kind of strange, and maybe that person, whoever they were, was just confused, so I let it go. Then a few weeks later, emails started to come in. Here's an example. Hi, Lindsay. Are you aware or familiar with the discrediting of Brian Wansink? Can you comment? I had absolutely no idea what was going on, which seemed strange to me because I practically stalk Wansink and the Cornell Food Lab in every way that I can. I mean, I'm one step away from creating a Google alert on them. So I thought for sure I would be in the know if anything was happening, but I wasn't in the know. As more emails and comments started to come in, and every time I kind of tweeted about him, someone would have one of those weird replies, and then I started getting some mean-spirited emails and things like, well, now that my hero has fallen from grace, how do I feel about that? Now wasn't I discredited because I was quoting someone who's discredited and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I'm going to get to all this in a minute, I promise. I also kind of was having this weird sort of sick sense of deja vu. A few years ago, another research, this one that I also respect but happen to know personally quite well, is T. Colin Campbell, who wrote The China Study. And he came under scrutiny, and The China Study came under scrutiny. And I just assumed, okay, fine, that's it. Brian's the latest it guy. He's the person whose career and work is going to be picked apart and attacked by some blogger or some researcher trying to make a name for themselves who wants media attention because, you know, everybody loves a circus or whose career path is now 
I don't know, going to be ripping apart some other person's work to gain status or whatever. And hey, you know what? I'm no saint. I do it too. This whole podcast is about blowing the lid off myths and things that have been passed around as truth when they're not. So, you know, I get it. But that's what I figured what was going on. I figured this situation is super familiar. It's the same thing and I don't really need to pay attention to it. And then someone that I know, and by know, I mean we interact with each other on social media sometimes, she sent me a link to an article on BuzzFeed. Now, BuzzFeed isn't exactly where I go for facts or scientific inquiry. Actually, I don't go there at all for those things. I just wasn't paying attention. I was really kind of ready to write it off. And I even sort of said that saying like, "Um, yeah, it's BuzzFeed. But she goes, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. I don't trust BuzzFeed either, but... They're just basically covering the backstory. They're breaking it. It's got citations from other places. It's not actually a BuzzFeed thing as much as it's happening on BuzzFeed. And by this point in our conversation, other media outlets started breaking, like Vox, New York Times, like everybody started to have their own similar article and was reporting sort of the same things. And so I was like, all right, fine, fine, fine. I'm going to pay attention. But before I can dig into what actually happened and what the results have been over the last few months, I need to say this. Witch hunts in controversy always sell. And at the root of even the most extreme claim or controversy, I find there's always there this tiny, itty bitty, very small, maybe even grain of salt size small truth. Small, but it's there. There's always this tiny little bit. No matter how ugly the motives were to begin, whatever the reason this all happened, Deep in there, there's this tiny little grain of truth. And that's what I look for. I accept this. I accept that there's usually some kind of truth in there, and I look for it. I look for that grain of sand. I look for that small little bit of truth. Part of having been on this whole journey with this podcast and learning the science and unlearning so much that I thought I knew is true is that I have to accept, like, and I hope you do too, that even with researchers or institutions or podcasts like mine that you like and you trust, you have to know that mistakes will and do happen. And that researchers and journalists and bloggers, including me, we all bring our own bias, which makes us interpret facts or data or even words in in favor of what we wanted to say at times, and we're not even necessarily aware that we're doing this. You know, we might think we're the most objective, subjective, whatever, but we're just not able to ever be completely because we're humans. And there's actually ample studies that are completely dedicated to this whole phenomenon. There's actually been some really big conclusions in the last two years that most published research findings are false. And it's because all of these different innate biases exist and there's just not really a way to account for them. So we should quite literally take everything with a grain of salt. And then there's also this growing problem of p-hacking. And I don't want to digress into that, but if you want to know more about p-hacking, there's a whole bunch of links in the show notes. Just to kind of come back, the whole scientific community generally gets this, which is why peer reviews exist and there has to be replications multiple times and different trials. Like that's why the whole scientific method inquiry, that's why this all exists, is because everyone knows that there's bias. So what I guess I'm trying to say before I really dig into everything is seeing the humanness of Wansink, and I'm going to share some kind of colorful and not so pretty things about him, or even the humanness of Campbell because his study, the China study, wasn't absolutely perfect. All that does is makes them 
actually more endearing to me. And it makes me even more vigilant about having an open mind and following the science as it's presented, preparing myself that it may change. I may need to even radically change my mind and what I know as truth again, because this has already happened to me through the course of this podcast many times. It's like I've had to face what I believe is true, then look into the science and realize, oh, that's not it at all. And like I said, any of the negative things I might reveal here or say, it doesn't change my opinion. He's still my hero. And I hope that can be, I don't know, inspiring or insightful. But what I do think was a little funny slash ironic slash I don't know the universe was as I was getting ready to record this podcast, I decided to do a little meditation to sort of get myself in the mode. And um, this quote was given at the end of my meditation. I like flaws and feel more comfortable around people who have them. I myself am made entirely of flaws, stitched together with good intentions. And that was by Augustine Burroughs. I hope I said that name right. I just thought that was so perfect. All right, so let's come back to the accusations. The accusations that came out against, I'm just gonna say Brian, because I'm pretty sure I say his last name wrong all the time. But what came against Brian and his food lab were that there was inconsistencies in how his lab handled data, and there was like some problems with how he conducted some of the experiments. As far as I can tell, the main issue the complainers, or if you wanna call them haters, whatever, have is this that Brian isn't scientist enough, or his work isn't scientific enough, or his work isn't real science, et cetera, et cetera. It seems everyone, and especially the particular handful of media people who were going after him, would stop going after him or be satisfied if everyone else would stop calling him a scientist, calling his work science. Like if People just stop doing that. They don't seem like they would be so bothered. Actually, I found a tweet from one of the unhappy people that I think sums up this entire opinion problem quite well. The tweet reads, power poses and pizza preferences are not, quote, science. They are junk psychology generated by junk psychologists as junk entertainment for undemanding audiences. It is offensive to hear hucksters like Cuddy and Wansink referred to as scientists. In the show notes, I explain who Cuddy is in case you're curious. But what's funny to me is that Brian is a professor of marketing in the Cornell College of Business. Has been all along. Just saying. But I'm getting ahead of myself again. So let me circle back again to late February and what happened. So the friend I mentioned was Dr. Janet Frick, and she's a psychologist at UGA, and she works in the peer review area herself, and so she understands how all of this works at a larger level. She reached out to me to discuss the allegations as they were happening. Like me, Frick is a huge follower of Brian's. She tries to incorporate his findings into her life as much as possible. I'm going to read some stuff that she wrote, and you'll hear that. And she basically said, hey, listen, I'm happy to go to a few more academically rigorous critiques if you want to know, like if you want to go beyond BuzzFeed. And so, you know, peace and blessings, please do that. And here's the email that she wrote back to me. Okay, 
So I've done a bit of digging around this, and what I can tell you as a scientific research at a Research One university is that the number of retractions and corrections that BW has had to issue over his work is highly unusual. This is not normal for well-run labs. The thing to pay attention to is not where the investigative journalism is being published, whether it be BuzzFeed or Washington Post. The thing to pay attention to is the substance of the reporting. The open records emails are troubling. I'm going to talk about these emails. Retractions and corrections of published peer-reviewed papers are unusual. It's an embarrassment to have that happen. It can happen due to certain types of oversight, but to have an ongoing pattern of them is highly unusual. I know it may seem like a witch hunt, but I don't consider this to be the same caliber as the bloggers that were coming against Dr. Campbell. He had solid science to back him up. Anyway, none of this takes away from my respect for your work or the validity of your approach. I don't consider any sort of a gotcha about the importance of behavioral change in weight loss. Mostly as a scientist, I just want to be cautious about someone who has a pattern of massaging data, that's in quotes, to get publications and press coverage. I know firsthand the pressures that comes at the top ranks of academia towards publishing, and I know this type of thing probably happens a lot more than many of us are aware. Honestly, all of us who publish in peer-reviewed journals need to be ready for the mob, that's in quotes, to come after our work. We need to have our ducks in a row and be ready to answer questions. If we work at a public university or we have federal funding, this is part of that deal. We can be audited or have our data investigated at any time, and we all know that. In case I lost you back there, some of Brian's published papers have been retracted or a correction has been issued after a couple of researchers slash bloggers slash journalists went on a mission to find problems and bring him down. At least that's how it seems to feel and read to me. At the time of this recording, seven of his papers have been retracted and 15 have been amended. This, uh, as she said, is not unusual, but also most people aren't having people go after them the way he has. And also, even with numbers like 7 and 15, keep in mind this is out of hundreds of papers that he has published. But even with these people that are trying to find problems, they're not finding that many. They're really trying at this point, whereas most people just aren't under as much scrutiny as he's under right now, or was. It's kind of been put to rest, which I'll get to. And it all sort of started with what the media is calling, quote, the pizza papers. And the fact that they're calling that, I think, says a lot. But anyway, if you want to learn more, you can Google that. And with regard to those specific papers that started all this, that brought the allegations in, Cornell, which did its own investigation, hence the allegations, issued a statement that while he did make a mistake, he did not engage in scientific misconduct and things have moved on. He's still working for them. The Cornell Food Lab still exists and stuff is still happening. Wansick's methods are still criticized and bothersome to some scientists. I'm going to just go ahead and refer to them as purists, while others accept that when it comes to social psychology and human behavior or even any kind of a study dealing with humans, you can't be pure. People don't live in test tubes or labs, and we actually have a lot of empirical evidence showing that there's just a high unreliability of results both in psychology and food science, period, not just the stuff that Brian's doing. And there are also some people who are upset by his emails. Freaking emails is the theme of this. Okay. Anyway, so there are some people who are upset by his emails, and I'm going to get to that in a minute too. Others have lamented about there being 
I guess a chilling effect is the best word, that all of this that's happening with Brian right now, this is going to create a chilling effect, or there's going to be a future loss of transparency that this is all just going to cause. SAS Tim Schwab wrote, quote, public shaming may offer a sense of catharsis, but it also puts scientists on the defensive, afraid to openly address their own scientific methods. And I feel this way too, especially since I'm about to reveal the findings of my first study in the next episode, which I'm really excited about, but then I'm like, oh my gosh, everyone's going to come for me. But yeah, so exciting stuff is coming on my end, but enough about me. Let me hop back to Brian. The final thing Janet said to me, and I said this to her at the exact same time we were tweeting through instant message at this point. Like I said, we said at the same time and she said jinx and we both giggled like schoolgirls. But anyway, whether it's quote true or not, I still follow Wansing's advice, or at least I try to. That's what she said. And that's what I said to her too. So my question is this, if his findings, quotes here, changed my life, and her life, and have changed the life of so many others. And even if he did come to it in the wrong way, but it still works, where does that leave us? I think this is ultimately what this entire season has been about. If you believe. There is a great power in your mindset. We saw that in every episode this season, particularly with Crumb's research. Her research showed unanimously that the effect you expect is the effect you get. Remember, there was the house cleaner study who the house cleaners, they started perceiving themselves as exercise superstars and stopped seeing their work as taxing on their body. They stopped seeing it as hard labor and they immediately lost weight, improved their health, changed their blood pressure, and they didn't do anything different. They didn't change their diet. They didn't change their exercise. They didn't change their job. They just saw house cleaning as good for them. And then there was the World War II sailors who were so desperate for cherry jello that the chef, super stressed out, just put red dye into the lemon jello and nobody missed a beat. In fact, many sailors came up to the chef and thanked him for finding cherry jello. It wasn't cherry jello. And then there was my personal favorite, the milkshake study, where participants were given one milkshake labeled indulgent treat. And then the following week, they were given another milkshake labeled sensi shake. And it was noted as lower in fat and calories than the other one. And as the participants were drinking these shakes both times, blood samples were taken. And given the calorie difference, the you know, decadent shake had a lot more calories and a lot more fat than the Sensi shake. There should have been difference in the levels of ghrelin in their blood. Like the ghrelin should have been different to account for the fact that there was such a big nutritional and calorie difference in the shakes. And there was. We saw huge differences in the ghrelin of the participants' blood. But here's the thing. It was all a sham. The shakes were exactly the same in both instances. They drank the same exact shape, same time, but quite literally, I know, that's blowing my mind up too. But that literally was like the most profound example of mindset. And so there's a lot of groundbreaking science this season, a lot of amazing studies like that. Check out the previous episodes if you want to learn more. But the idea here is your perception, your mindset, what you believe can dramatically change the body's response, even at a hormonal level. From the moment I read most of Brian's tips or food ideas, from the very first time I read Mindless Eating, It all clicked for me. It was more than simply sounding plausible, 
deep inside myself, I already knew what he was saying was true because of my own experience. It all just made sense to me very deeply, very profoundly. And so when he gave tips or suggestions, I believed they would work. I followed them. I put them into practice to see for myself whether it was true or not. And that's the best advice I can give to anyone. If you hear something from me or anyone and it makes sense to you, believe it, try it, go with it. Many of us already do this every single day, except we call it a different word. We call it faith. If you need to collect more evidence, then do it. But preferably, use your own personalized real-world experiences, past, present, and currently, because that's the ultimate litmus test. In defense of Brian Wansing, which there are a lot of people defending him, one researcher wrote, but how about all those clever-seeming food ideas I listed at the top of the article? Examples were like, use a smaller plate. They all sound plausible, and they might all be true. The problem is that the science supporting them is deeply flawed, so we just don't know. But do we really? Or is that just another distraction? Bottom line, if you don't believe something will work, it probably won't. If you think you will fail, you probably will. But if you think this will work and I will succeed, you have a fighting chance. Self-fulfilling prophecies are very real. Your mindset matters. And we have purest approved science to support that. I often tell my private clients and folks doing my weight loss blueprint, listen, you don't need to read more about that. More education is just procrastination. It allows you to feel you have accomplished something without doing anything differently. Weight loss only rewards action takers. Action is better than more learning. Of course, I want you to listen to this podcast, but it would really light me up to know that you're doing it while you're walking or preparing recipes from the blueprint or this week's meal plan or just some other healthy recipe you like. All the information is great, but knowing, learning, information, that doesn't bring change. Only action brings change. That's the biggest takeaway I want to give you is that weight loss science rewards action takers. To close out the Wansink issue, like I said, Cornell investigated and said, yeah, he made some mistakes, but there was no scientific misconduct. A few emails written by him and how he was basically saying to people he was working with that they could phrase things a certain way to make it more sexy to the media, to make it go more viral. And all these emails of him trying to get his work to be more viral or more sexy sounding leaked. And this sort of led another winch hunt against him. But guys, he's a professor of marketing. Why is him wanting things to go viral so surprising? And doesn't everyone want that? Yes, of course, everyone has these thoughts and does these things and says these things. Why are we just witch hunting against him? When looking back over the emails and comments I sent to others as this hoopla was happening and people were first contacting me and also sort of reviewing what other defenders have said, I found a central theme that has come up a lot this year with my private clients and the release of my Shortcut to Slim Blueprint. 
Here are a few quotes or points made by me and other defenders that I kind of want to share as food for thought. One, you can't, quote, prove a hypothesis. You can find evidence that's consistent with a hypothesis, but logically you can't prove it. There could always be another yet unthought of hypothesis that may one day come to rule the day. Two, even extremely well-rounded theories such as evolution can be refined. Three, physics, for example, has its share of fudge factors like dark matter. My completely non-expert feeling on this is that there are 10 billion of variables anytime you involve a single human. You can't prove anything, not perfectly, and if it helps, it helps. You have to be your own investigative reporter. Focus on what helps you. Which brings me back to that central theme I mentioned, sitting and asking yourself why. Here's something I say all the time to everyone doing my blueprint on coaching calls. I encourage you to ask yourself, why do you need this? Why do you want to add a salad, banana, whatever to the meal? Why do you need that? Why isn't the meal enough for you? Why are you already looking at the meal as not enough and trying to preemptively add something? Why are you arbitrarily seeking to add more when the goal is to eat less? Shouldn't you wait and see first? Why do you need to enhance your food? Aren't you here to learn how to eat more biologically? If you're feeling rebellious or defiant, ask yourself why that is. And this is because on the initial coaching calls, people are like, can I have coffee with creamer? Can I add this? Can I have that? Can I add a salad? Can I have soup? Can I substitute this for this? And that's what I say to them, this little quote. It's actually like a little printed color thing. It's long, I know. So here is it phrased another way. What idea or thought or desire are you trying to validate? I'm going to repeat that. What idea or thought or desire are you trying to validate? And maybe also ask yourself, why do you need the validation or the approval? Is it so you can keep doing what you're doing and not do the work you need to? As a closing thought, I really like this saying that rationalize sounds nearly identical to rational lies. I also want to remind you that it takes a great deal of courage to change your thoughts and perceptions because we feel blame and guilt and shame when we go against what we already believe or have already accepted as truth. And it's important to remember that feelings of defiance are usually signs that you're onto something and that it's working because our brains try to protect us from pain and discomfort, which are necessary for change. All change, even good for you change, is grief. And you're going to go through all of the stages. And that's where most of us become at risk for faltering. Knowing what you feel, that defiance, that rebellion, that FOMO, is part of the progression part of the healing process, and it's actually there to help you. You just have to walk through it. You have to get on the other side of surrender and acceptance, and you do that by being faithful and trusting the process at all costs. When I'm leading a group of people through the blueprint, I often have to say this rather bluntly. Your way is obviously not working perfectly for you. If it was, you wouldn't be here. 
Why not try something else? Something you know works and has proven results. It's just two weeks. You don't have to do the whole two weeks today, this minute. Start with, couldn't I just? Couldn't you just eat this breakfast? Couldn't you just think about microwaving some rice? Also, when people challenge me or combat me or challenge the science or are just otherwise really super duper defiant on these calls, I don't engage. And it's not that I don't like skepticism. I actually encourage skepticism and curiosity, but I don't defend, justify, argue, or explain, which JADE is a helpful acronym. And it's because I don't need to. If you believe you already know everything and you have all the answers, I can't help you. No one can help you. There's no room for more information or a conversation in that kind of space. Your mindset has to be right for anything to work because your thoughts and your perceptions set the tone for everything else that happens in your body, in your life, and on your plate. You've been listening to Shortcut to Slim, a research-based podcast brought to you by Happy Herbivore and Meal Mentor, GetMealPlans.com. I'm your host, Lindsay S. Nixon, and in the next episode, I'm going to share with you the findings of a study I conducted this summer. If you struggle with negative self-talk, have or had depression in the past, struggle with feeling happy most days, or you'd simply like to improve your mood, feel more confident, feel happier and less stressed, improve your strength and coordination without ever working out or exercising, don't miss the next episode. I'm going to be sharing all the results with you and what you can take and apply to yourself immediately. To learn more about my weight loss blueprint, visit happyherbivore.com slash supreme dash slimdown. Thank you for listening. If what you've heard here has been helpful, please rate this podcast in iTunes and share it with a friend.